0: Greetings students. As always, this is Professor Totten and welcome to the history of the American people to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Communication, Market, and Transportation Revolutions. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, The Cotton Economy. In order to understand Jacksonian politics, we need to look at how major changes to the American economy will reverberate throughout society and become the focal point of political party debates. Now, at least until the Civil War, the U.S. economy, both North and South, was primarily agricultural. But in the early 1800s, industry in the North began to expand, especially in New England, where commercial agriculture had never been as profitable as it was in the South. In the South, industry did not grow as much, but new inventions made agriculture more profitable. By the 1790s, slavery's profits were declining, and without new innovations, the institution could have been seriously challenged. In 1794, a northerner called Eli Whitney acquired a patent for a new cotton gin. Now, the word gin just means machine, so this means the cotton machine. Originally, it was a cylinder with wire teeth that turned against cotton drums and mangled the cotton. But Whitney bragged that he could clean 2,500 pounds of cotton per day with only two workers. And this inspired improvements. Before the gin, a worker could clean only one pound of cotton per day. But with the gin, he actually could now do 50 pounds per day. And this is going to lead to the cotton boom around the South. Cotton became known as King Cotton because of its centrality to the Southern economy and society. Tobacco production had been dwindling and cotton replaced it as the most important southern crop. Demand for cotton led to substantial growth in slavery. Between 1790 and 1820, the American slave population increased from 700,000 to 1.5 million. At the same time, slavery was declining in the north. In north and south though, were linked, southern cotton was used in northern textile mills. By 1804, all states north of Delaware had either abolished slavery or passed laws for gradual emancipation. And from this moment onward, the North is going to conveniently forget about their past with slavery. Remember one of the major themes of this course, memory versus history. Well, Whitney's invention also popularized the use of interchangeable parts. Before this, if you built a machine or even a gun, it was a one-off. If something gets broken, you have to buy a completely new device because you just cannot take parts from one and put it on the other. Well, Whitney had learned by experimenting with mass-producing guns for the U.S. Army that standardization improves efficiency, and it helps the user. You can switch parts when something breaks, and this is going to revolutionize production across the country. Please advance to the next slide entitled changes in production. In the 18th century, American life was pretty localized. Southern farmers had been exporting their crops since the 1600s, and northern merchants had always traded with the Caribbean and Europe. But it was slow and expensive to ship crops and goods within the United States. In 1815, it cost just as much to transport a ton of freight across the Atlantic as it did to haul it 30 miles inland. This changed during the market revolution a term used by some historians to describe the revolutions in transportation, communication, agriculture, and industry. These revolutions made it far easier for people to produce crops and goods for larger markets. Now, The effects of the market revolution are diverse. Some grew rich, some grew poor, and the majority remained somewhere in between. Most embraced the era's new opportunities for progress, most also acknowledge the great changes and uncertainty of the era, and we have to wonder, did society become more unequal? Yes and no. In the 1800s, goods were usually made in small workshops, headed by a skilled worker who was assisted by a journeyman and apprentices. Workers were closely supervised by a master who mentored them. They often lived with the shop owner, since his home is within the shop or above it. Going forward, production increasingly moved out of small workshops and into larger factories. At the same time, the manufacturing process was reorganized into a series of simple, standardized tasks that could be formed quickly by unskilled workers. An increasing amount of people worked for wages. Unskilled workers were more replaceable and were thus paid far less. They had less opportunity to become self-employed, And there were lingering questions about how this would affect the republic. Would wage workers be considered free? What did the founding generation think about wage laborers? They feared them. They thought they could be controlled. Now in Lowell, Massachusetts, we see the rise of textile mills. Textile mills recruited young women from all over New England. They worked 73 hours per week for relatively high wages. They lived in boarding houses under strict supervision. This was a cultural experience. Women attended lectures and church activities. It was a good opportunity for country girls, widows, and young women to make money. But changes in labor relations will make this good opportunity more burdensome in terms of the work and living conditions. Pay will decrease. Labor surpluses will go up, and eventually many of these women will be pushed out in exchange for immigrant laborers, especially from Ireland. Now, the changes to the city of Lowell as a result of textile mills is illustrated in the population. In 1826, there were 2,500 people living there. A decade later, it was 18,000. The growth of cities we call urbanization. In 1790, 5% of the United States population lived in cities of 2,500 people or more. By 1860, 25% of the American populace lived in such large cities. But rapid urbanization creates an array of problems. What do you think will happen when a population grows faster than a city? Well, there's no such thing as city planning back then. You will have slums, poor sewage, transportation issues, pollution, disease, crime, poverty, and social ills. And thus, with the rise of urbanization and industrialization, we see the expansion of local government attempting to deal with these various problems. Urbanization and industrialization also increased social stratification, the extremes of rich versus poor, cities bred the greatest extremes of economic inequality, and unskilled workers were the worst off. They usually accounted for one half of the city's population. Yet we must acknowledge, America provided more opportunity than Europe did for most of its people. Wages for unskilled workers rose about 1% a year from 1820 to 1860. General prosperity helped defuse potential class conflict that was more endemic in Europe. And America also did not have a ruling aristocracy, which helped alleviate class conflict. In this era, we also see the rise of immigration. Many of the era's unskilled workers were immigrants. From 1848 to 1855, 2.8 million immigrants came to the United States, most of whom were Irish. Immigration is usually caused by push or pull factors. The pull factor is opportunities in America. The push factor is unrest at home. From 1845 to 1849, the Irish famine raged, in which millions of Irishmen starved as a result of bad policies by the British government and a potato blight. This resulted in many Irish coming to America, which also led to anti-Catholic nativism, which we'll talk about in a moment. We also see immigrants come to America as a result of the revolutions of 1848. This caused lots of liberal Germans to come to the United States, especially in New England, Pennsylvania, New York, and the modern Midwestern states of Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and even parts of the South, like St. Louis, Missouri. Immigration accounts for the largest percentage of population increase, and Germans typically fared better since they brought more money and skills with them. Catholic Irish suffered much more discrimination, but persistent labor shortages prevented natives from totally excluding foreign elements from society. There's one more major thing that I want to talk about with regards to industrialization, and that is the division of labor. Division of labor ensured that work became more specialized, and work at home became less significant. Women's work no longer seemed as valuable, even though colonization and expansion could not have been possible without all of the work that women did. This led to the creation of an ideology called the domestic sphere. The home was no longer the center of economic production. Outside the home, the market corrupted all. So the home grew into a refuge from the world of work, and it became a special and separate sphere for women. So as we can see, industrialization alters working relations between men and women, and creates a whole new set of ideals to justify economic and social change. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Politics of Industrialization. There were numerous political consequences associated with the market and industrial revolution. In many ways, the second party system itself was a response to the market revolution, People who embraced it were often Whigs. People who disliked it were often workers or Democrats. Though there are obviously some caveats depending on time and place. We see the market revolutions influenced by Jackson's use of class rhetoric. His war against the bank. The removal of Native Americans to facilitate cotton production are all parts of the market and industrial revolution. Hence, they became focal points of political disagreement many Americans also began to embrace reform movements to solve society's problems created by these economic changes. We see the growth of evangelical religion. It is both heartfelt and practical, the use of religion to justify control over parts of society that you wish to change. In this era, there is no safety net, which means people have to help society, not government. And as we will see, Women are critical to these movements. They see the expansion of their public power, but always within the confines of their gender norms. Many Americans condemn the Irish as poor, Catholic drunkards who stole jobs, drove down wages, and acted as agents of the Pope. And in fact, the standard depiction of an Irishman in this era was of an ape-like creature holding a bottle of whiskey in one hand and a club in the other. As a result of increased immigration, we see the rise of nativism, which is anti-immigrant feeling or groups, the hatred towards outsiders. Nativism rises in the 1840s and 50s, and we see the formation of semi-secret nativist fraternal orders. An example of this is in 1854, with the formation of a third party to challenge the Democrats and the Whigs, and they were called the American Party but they were more popularly known as the Know-Nothings. Why were they called that? Well, according to tradition, members pleaded ignorance when questioned about their clubs. If you asked where the next meeting was, they would say, I Know-Nothing, and hence the name stuck. The Know-Nothings got so powerful that by 1855, they controlled most state legislatures in New England and more than 60 seats in the U.S. Congress. After a number of Whigs flocked to the American Party in the 1850s, for a short period of time, it was the nation's second largest political party. And this created a political realignment for a time. But the Know-Nothings were going to be later folded into the Republican Party, which produced another period of political realignment that ended after the American Civil War. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Regional Specialization. The East became the industrial center of the country. They made the machines and the textiles for the two other regions. By 1861, the East owned 81% of all industrial capacity. It contained most of the country's railroads, and both of these facts will help the North win the Civil War. The East was the most populous region and contained 70% of manufacturing workers. Massive immigration of Irish and Germans came to the East, which fueled urbanization, but also the rise of nativist parties. It also provided the manpower for Union armies during the Civil War. The South was a cotton export region. Cotton was exported to New England and Britain, and slavery was thus entrenched in the South. The Southerners did not want to change the economy or its culture, and this created a ruling oligarchy that resisted change or threats to their dominance. Industrial growth was surprisingly high for its day, although industrial output never exceeded 2% of the value of the cotton crop in the South. There were a few major industrial works. If you go to the next slide, you will see a picture of the Tredeker Iron Works in Virginia, which also used slave labor and became an essential production center during the Civil War. But no industry in the South means fewer immigration, and that means the South will have a more homogeneous society, which means fewer nativist parties in the South. The West became the nation's breadbasket. Grain and livestock was sent to workers in the East and Europe. The West had the fastest growing population. By 1860, one half of the population lived in states and territories not in existence during Washington's administration. And this had important political implications, because the two northernly sections, the East and the West, are going to be closely interconnected economically so that during the Civil War, the South will be isolated. Foreign commerce amounted to about 7% of the national product. Now, Cotton accounted for over 50% of all US exports, and Americans generally imported more than they exported. Americans imported manufactured goods while exporting agricultural goods, and after 1846, U.S. agriculture played a larger role in trade with Great Britain. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Transportation Revolution. The prime motivation for this revolution was the desire of the East to tap into the resources of the West. Transportation had numerous significant outcomes and repercussions moving forward. By the Civil War, a national market emerged. Revolutionary changes in commerce and communication came three decades before the Civil War as tracks and canals sprung out from the east across the Alleghenies. Buffalo came to handle more western produce than New Orleans, and New York became America's largest port, and this reinforces regional specialization as I described earlier. Transportation conditions prior to this revolution were very poor. Roads were not useful for much of the year, It was dusty in the summer and muddy during the rainy season. Corduroy roads are roads with logs over it and it is very bumpy and not very pleasant travel. The cost to haul tons of goods 30 miles inland is more expensive than to send a ton of freight to London. Since most American rivers run mostly north to south, this means east-west travel is often impossible for freight. The dry season can reduce navigable rivers to trickling streams, further limiting commerce. Now There will be a great deal of opposition to transportation projects. States riders opposed federal aid to local projects. Eastern states protested against the exodus of their population to the west. And new routes will help some, but hurt others. Why is this? Well, if a road, canal or railroad is built near you, it increases your access to markets and usually increases the value of your land. But if it is built far from you, it is cutting you out of that trade network. It is more competition for you, and small farms and businesses will suffer. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Transportation Innovations. The first innovation we are going to talk about is the steamboat. The first practical one was built by Robert Fulton. And it was called the Claremont. It moved up the Hudson River in 1807. It left New York City and churned 500 miles up the Hudson River to Albany in less than 32 hours. The significance was clear. This changed all of America's navigable streams into two way arteries. Carrying capacity of rivers could double. In 1820, there were 60 steamboats on the Mississippi. By 1860, There were 1,000. Populations clustered along the banks of rivers. Profitability of manufactured products soared. And this is an example of private investment in entrepreneurial innovation. The next innovation is roads. From 1806 to 1818, the National or Cumberland Road was built from Cumberland, Maryland to Wheeling, Virginia in modern West Virginia. From 1838 to 1852, it was extended an additional 591 miles to Illinois. And this is an example of federal investment that is also aided by state funds. And this road will become a vital highway to the west. Freight carrying will become cheaper. European immigrants will flow over the mountains. Land values will be enhanced. And population centers in the west will swell. We also see the growth of turnpikes, which are broad, hard-surfaced highways that are better quality than traditional roads. The next innovation is canals. And a good example of canals is the Erie Canal, built between 1817 to 1825. This project was supported by New York Governor DeWitt Clinton. It stretched 363 miles from Albany to Lake Erie near Buffalo. This was a very expensive project, and New York asked for federal aid, but states' writers refused. So this project was entirely funded by the state of New York, aided by some private investors. And so we see this as an example of state investment with some aid from private investors in the form of government bonds. As a result of the Erie Canal, the cost of shipping a ton of grain from Buffalo to New York City fell $100 to $5. The time also was reduced from 20 to 6 days. Land values skyrocketed. New cities emerged, including Rochester and Syracuse. New York became the fastest growing and wealthiest city on the Atlantic coast. The Old Northwest now provided profitable farming opportunities, and thousands of European immigrants flowed across the Alleghenies to the west. Towns along the Great Lakes exploded, including Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. But on the negative side, New England farmers suffered ruinous competition from the west and many small farms went under. From 1816 to 1840, over 3,000 miles of canals were constructed by states and private companies at a cost of $125 million. And it's going to be these canals which greatly helped the north and the west during the Civil War. Another innovation is railroads. And this is the most significant contribution to transportation in terms of distances. Railroads are fast, reliable, and cheaper than canals to construct, and they don't freeze in the winter. Railroads can go almost anywhere, and they seem to defy the terrain and weather, with literal holes being carved into mountainsides. The first working train appeared in England in 1825, and locomotives were operating in the United States by the 1830s. The first important line was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1828, the B&O for short. And no, it's not just a monopoly thing, it's an actual railroad. In 1840, there were over 3,000 miles of track in the United States, and by 1860, there are 27,000 miles of track, three quarters of which were in the industrialized north. Railroads were opposed by canal backers, turnpike investors, tavern keepers, and horse and haste sellers, all of which were adversely affected by railroads. Over time, railroad gauges were standardized, safety devices were adopted, and solid iron rails laid. Horse-drawn railroads were also used for mass transit in major cities. Railroads are a great example of the combination of federal, state, and private investment, the marshalling of all the country's resources to vastly expand infrastructure. The last innovation I want you to know is the clipper. Ships with huge sails, which are exceedingly fast. Their cargoes can be hauled in record time, and they soon overshadow British steamers. All of these innovations improve commerce, though not to everyone's benefit. All are examples of different private, state, or federal investment strategies. And this illustrates that we have a long history of using multiple methods to build infrastructure. Now, you have an important question going forward that you get to decide on your own. What role, if any, should the government play in funding or subsidizing internal improvement projects? Should it only be the states? Should the federal government help? Should we let private investors do it? The point is that history shows us all of these examples have been used in our past, so if any politician or talking head tells you it is un-American to fund a transportation project, you know history shows us otherwise. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Communications Revolution. In the antebellum period, there were vast improvements in papermaking and printing technology. Newspapers and weekly journals had Price's current columns where farmers learned about market conditions. When I originally wrote this lecture, I used to say that newspapers back then were very different because they were extremely partisan, but I think that we can look at every media outlet today and say that it's pretty much the same. Nearly every town in America which had over 2,000 people had at least one or usually two newspapers. Those who could not read had papers read to them at taverns or common areas. In this era, we also see the expansion of the U.S. Postal Service, which was the best in the world. From 1815 to 1830, the number of U.S. post offices increased from 3 to 8,000. From 1816 to 1851, the price of mailing a long-distance letter dropped from 25 cents to 3 cents. It was the single greatest postal system since the Mongol Empire. But it has been gutted in our modern era by short-sighted politicians attempting to prove that the free market is better than government. I mean, we have ridiculous um, requirements on the post office and the way that they fund their pensions that literally no other part of the government has to do, that no other company in America does, and it was all designed to make the postal system fail. And it boils my blood because the postal system is written in the U.S. Constitution, and that's just bad politics. The third major innovation in the communication revolution is the telegraph, invented by Samuel Morris in 1832. The telegraph ran from Baltimore to Washington, and in 1844, it covered the Whig National Convention which nominated William Henry Harrison for president, and the first message conveyed over this telegraph line said, What hath God wrought? a biblical passage, but also a sign or an expression from Morse signaling the immense power at the hands of Americans. In 1858, the Cyrus Field American Telegraph Company succeeded in stretching a telegraph cable between Newfoundland and Ireland, and despite the fact that it snapped in 1859, a new one was successfully built in 1866. Another innovation from Morse is called Morse Code. Now, can you guess why Morse would invent a code? Maybe efficiency? Maybe to help the military? No. Morse was convinced that there was a papal Catholic conspiracy to take over the American Republic, so he wanted a code that Protestants could use to alert each other to stop the plot. The point is there is a long continuity in American history of crazy conspiracy theories. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Summary. The American economy experienced great changes, bringing a whole host of social and political ramifications. Political parties grappled with the questions of challenging or harnessing the market revolution. People were either caught up or left behind in the revolution. And what do you do when society seems to change so radically? Well, many will turn to religion and reform, which we will talk about next time. And it is no coincidence that some of the areas areas that experience the most economic change are also the sites of intense religious revivals and political partisanship. And lastly, these revolutions will set up the conditions which contribute to Northern victory in the American Civil War. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope that you are all doing well, staying safe, and making smart decisions. Please remember that this is not the most important thing out there. Your mental and physical safety matters more, so take care of yourselves. Um, Make sure that you are keeping up with your reading responses. You have a documentary review coming up, but the uh, due date is a little bit um, porous. All right, please turn it in on time. But if you don't, I'm not going to ding ding you for it. Um, Also, as I said before, your final is going to be online as normal, so no issues there. And other than that, we're going to keep plugging along. So be good do good, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.